I'm Charlotte Pickles. I'm editor of the Capitalism Theme for Unheard, and I am joined by Victoria Bateman, one of our regular columnists. Victoria, can you just introduce yourself for our listeners? So I'm Victoria Bateman. I'm fellow in economics at Gonvalinkey's College, Cambridge. Thank you very much. In the last two columns you've done for Unheard, you have been exploring a fascinating question, which is why are some countries, probably actually relatively few countries, very rich, whereas quite a lot of countries have remained poor? And I think what's been particularly interesting for us is you have presented some arguments which maybe are not the most frequent arguments that are put forward. So one of the interesting points you've made is actually, while some people would argue you know, to have a prosperous economy, you know, effective markets, you need a small state. That doesn't actually seem to be what the evidence is showing. Can you just talk to us a little bit about about what you said in your column and, and what that means? That's right. So ever since Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, we've been obsessed with this free market view of growth. And of course, if we think about what's happened in the global economy since that time, since 1776, we've seen you know major globalization. We've seen massive movements of capital across borders, of goods and services across borders, and of people as well. We know there's lots of talk about the neoliberal revolution since the days of Thatcher and Reagan. So we, you know, we've, we're very familiar with this idea that markets have been ever expanding over that 200 years or so. But what we tend to perhaps ignore is the fact that the state has also been ever expanding as well. And we tend to think about the relationship between the state and the market as being rather zero sum. You know, you imagine a cake that's split into two pieces and more of one means less of the other. And so this idea of the state crowding out market activity has been a very popular theme. Um, for for some years. Um, And I think what research in economics and economic development is increasingly suggesting is that there's an important synergy between markets and the state. And when we look at this either across the long span of time or um, across countries in the present world, what we tend to find is that rich economies both have quite well-developed markets, but also quite capable and sophisticated states, whilst poor economies have dysfunctional, close to non-existent markets, and at the same time, dysfunctional, close to non-existent states. And in fact, uh, if I can take a quote here from an important report from the National Bureau of Economic Research over in the US, published in 2013, and um, contributed to by two particularly prominent um, economists, Darren Akamoglu and James Robinson. And um, and this report notes that it's now widely recognised that the weakness or lack of capacity of states in poor countries is a fundamental barrier to their development prospects. Most poor countries have states which are incapable or unwilling to provide basic public goods such as the enforcement of law, order, education and infrastructure. So when we find poor countries, it's not necessarily because the state is is hanging over the private sector and crowding out private sector activity. Often it's because the state is not doing the things that states need to be doing um, to lay the foundations for the market to, um, to, to generate prosperity for the wider population. So essentially making sure that you have the state and markets working together rather than uh, against each other, I yeah. think. that That's really important. So there are... Um, 
There are, I would say there are three different ways of trying to understand why is it that when we look across history and across time, more prosperous economies tend to also have uh, more capable states. And, and the first way of resolving that is to say that what matters is not so much the size of the state, but how capable it is. So if you think about the, the fiscal system, it's tax and spending power. If you think about the legal system, you know, the government has to be able to do these things, which are quite difficult tasks, to do them in an efficient and capable way. Um, and at the same time, it needs to operate in a way that works with rather than against um, markets. There's been some interesting research done on China by a group of three um, economic historians, Yi Lu, um, Mona Luan and um, Tuan Hui Suang, um, published in 2016. And they found that before the market reforms, more Communist Party officials was was um, was bad for um, development as measured through things like um, health and um, economic outcomes. But after the market reforms, actually, the presence of the state seemed to um, seem to boost the economy because it was working with rather than um, against markets. And another thing that's really important is for the state to be subject to some kind of constraint. So um, for um, for the electorate to be able to boot the state. Uh, boot a particular government out if it's not acting in the wider interest of the economy. So that's the first way of thinking about the relationship between the state and prosperity, that what matters is not so much size, but capability. Um, a second way of thinking about it is that both prosperity and the state have a common underlying cause, that both are the result of some other factor. Um, and their democracy, again, is, is particularly relevant because what we find with democracies is they're pretty essential to providing you know, property rights, respecting um, individual ownership in the economy, and that providing incentives for people to grow their businesses, invest, and uh, create um, economic prosperity. But at the same time, democracy can result in a social contract, in a sense, between the system citizens and between the state in which we are happy to be taxed in the knowledge that that democratic government will do something positive with with the money that they raise um, and then there's a third resolution which is to reverse causality and to say rather than thinking about the state providing the foundations for prosperity what happens is that as come as countries become richer that that creates more demand for government. And here, um, the Oxford economic historian Avna Offer has argued that once our basic needs are met, then we tend to turn to, to the future. We think about providing pensions, um, providing healthcare, providing education for our children. And when it comes to providing those long-term um, wants or needs, um, we have a problem, which is we tend to be short-termist as humans, this myopia problem. And he argues that the state collecting taxes from us is a way of disciplining ourselves, a way of committing ourselves to actually providing those things that will help us in the long term. So he argues that the reason why we tend to find um, more government in the economy today is that as we've become richer, we've actually placed more demands on, on government. Which is a relatively nice segue into the second column, um, which essentially argued that in most very prosperous countries, we can also see a higher level of freedom, including economic freedom for women, which also links back to your point about democracy. Can you, can you just say a little bit about, about what that means? 
Yeah. So I think that if you think about the standard Adam Smith type view of how the West has become rich, the focus is on market freedom. It's on freedom for entrepreneurs. It's on freedom for merchants. And I think increasingly, possibly because I'm an academic, we, we've, we've ventured away from that to look at academic freedom, to think about science and technology and the importance of freedom for intellectuals. So there's a big theme in economic history right now focused on the enlightenment and how um, the the growing importance of merit as opposed to who you know, the growing importance of freedom of speech and tolerance, those kinds of freedoms within the intellectual sphere help to lay the foundations for economic growth. But I think what's missing when we're looking at you know, who is free is actually you know, the woman on the street, the freedom that the everyday woman has. And why do I think this is important? Well, I think if we're asking how Britain became the first industrial nation, the first nation nation to to spark the modern economic growth that we've been experiencing for the last 200 years that have improved our standard of living beyond bound I think what was relatively unique about Britain um, in advance of Britain's rise was freedom for women and we tend to we tend to think about women's freedom as being a product of economic growth, that that men create economic growth, that it's the great big names like um, Brunel um, and um, Newton and Einstein, you know, these great big names either in industry or in the intellectual sphere that create this prosperity. And then we women today have to thank those men for the freedoms. And all we have to do if we're a poor country today is, you know, focus on economic growth, get that right, and then um, women's freedom civil and um, political liberties will, will follow. And I think we've got that all wrong. I think there's an extent to which economies cannot start to um, develop and achieve um, higher levels of prosperity unless women are free. And I think there are really five benefits that come from a relative degree of freedom for women. And to understand that, I think it, it, it's essential to think about how women's freedom affects the way families operate. So if you think about the traditional family, um, in a traditional family, women are seen as a burden. Girls tend to be married off at a young age. And the result is that they are producing children from a very early age. You have a high population growth regime. You look at countries in uh, modern day sub-Saharan Africa. You look at India, you know, very high rates of child marriage. And that type of economy tends to produce a... Um, a low wage equilibrium because of the extent of population pressure in there. And I think what happened in Britain from very early on, from medieval times, if not before, is women had the opportunity to work in the marketplace. And that freedom to earn and look after themselves meant that they could... Um, they could turn away from their families if they were trying to marry them off at a young age. They could... That, that economic freedom bought them personal freedom. So it became very common for... British women to go out to work and to wait to marry until they found someone of their own choosing. So the average age at which a British woman was getting married in 1500s, 1600s and 1700s was about 25 or 26, which is a stark comparison compared with many day poor economies at an equivalent phase of development. And so this had five, five benefits. So firstly, um, with women getting married later and as a result having smaller numbers of children it created a lower pressure population regime that created a higher wage and that higher wage bob allen 
um, who, who published a book in 2009, The British Industrial Revolution in Global Perspective, he argues that that high wage was crucial for incentivizing the mechanization of the economy, that firms couldn't rely on exploiting cheap labor to produce, um, to produce their goods that the high wage actually pushed them to search out ever more innovative techniques, you know, the cotton machinery, for example, of the Industrial Revolution. Now, second thing, with smaller families and higher wages, families could better afford to educate their children. If you're having fewer children and you're earning more, then you can afford to apprentice your, your children. Of course, we're talking now about the days before free education. Um, so this also helped to provide um, a, a bigger skill base in the economy, which was pretty crucial when it came to uh, providing the economy with what it needed to grow. Third thing, again, um, smaller families, and higher wages meant the average family could afford to save a bit for the future. And in fact, the average family had to save because they knew that their children would fly the nest in the way that they had done when they were young, that you can't rely on marrying off one of your um, sons to, to a woman who can be brought into your home and look after you in old age. You have to now provide for yourself. Um, and those savings helped to facilitate higher levels of investment in the economy. Fourth thing, um, with, um, with this shift away from a kind of traditional family structure towards what we're talking about here, a more nuclear family structure where young people go out to work and they wait to get married until they find someone of their own choosing and then to actually get married, they have to be earning enough to actually start a family. Then that really creates a raw incentive for young people to work hard, to save, to set up businesses. Because if they don't do those things, if they don't build a life for themselves, they won't be able to afford to get married and have kids. And you know, there is no better drive to do well in life than the drive to have a personal life. You know, we're talking about a time when you literally wouldn't be able to have a sexual life. You wouldn't be able to have kids unless you could provide for them. So that capitalist spirit or the, um, I mean, Weber puts this down to Protestantism. He calls it the Protestant work ethic. But I would see that capitalist spirit as being very much a result of the way women's freedom is affecting family life. You know, if, you're, if you're relying on your parents to make a marriage match for you, then your own individual efforts really don't matter. You rely on the efforts of the previous generation. Now, fifth thing, and this brings us back to the, to the state. Um, I think what we've missed when we're thinking about democracy and the state is the way in which people are socialized from a very early age within the family. You know, the family is what we know for the first few years of our lives. And the way we are treated within the family affects um, the way we go on to expect to be treated in wider society. And if you're brought up in a traditional family structure where you're told to shut up, to be deferent to the um, older generations, you know, whether you're a young woman or a young man, that doesn't create a population that is demanding of democracy and that is all the time critical and willing to act as a check on those in authority. 
So family structures in which women are becoming more equal to men and in which young people are able to have a say because, you know, they can rely on markets to go out there and make a life for themselves and that gives them, them some personal power on the back of that economic power creates a population that is much more demanding of democracy, much less happy with autocratic government. Which I guess then brings us back full circle to needing a capable but uh, constrained state, which was the point of your first essay. Victoria, thank you so much. Um, I think there's an awful lot actually in looking back at the history of how we have become a prosperous nation um, in thinking about how we perhaps once again um, ensure that we have the prosperity that we all want to see. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sir John.